welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. We're so glad that you've joined us. Welcome again. My name is Scott, and I am part of our leadership team here in Inglewood. And if we have not met in person, then let me just remind everyone again that everybody on our staff sees community and connection and conversation as a central part of our job in community. And to that end, I am always game to set up a time to grab a coffee. And you can get the ball rolling by sending me an email, scott at commons.church, which is super easy. I actually spend lots of time working here in Inglewood, which just quickly, it has come to my attention that some of my references to working over here at Gravity on 9th from time to time have misled some of you. And by working, of course, I meant that I do meetings and I sit there and I write for commons. But those references have led more than a couple of you to think that I actually moonlight as a barista, which would be fine. I actually did this quite some time ago, but I don't do that anymore. I do, however, spend a lot of time at Gravity getting caffeine jitters in conversations with so many of you, and I'm always making space for more of those chats. So shoot me a note or try to catch me after on a Sunday. That's a great way to set up a time to meet, and we will get it ready to go. Now, that said, thanks for being here today for the beginning of a new series. And actually, the word new is a bit of a misnomer here, because today we're actually coming back to the book of Romans, which is this letter that looms so large in the Christian scriptures. And it was written by a guy named Paul, who we'll get to in a second. And we're actually coming back to Romans for the fifth and the final time. See, in our first year as a church, we started on this journey taking, well, actually, I think in year one, we took a verse on week one. That's all we got done. And then we worked through bit by bit, working with each piece of text to explore and examine the themes of this really significant letter. And we felt that it was best to take this kind of a slow and steady approach, in part because we were pretty sure that a six-month diet of Romans would have scared all of you away, but also because there are some big ideas and some implications here. There's some ideas that really need time to marinate in us, where we realize that, like Paul did, the story of Jesus really does have some profound implications for the way that we live and how we see ourselves and how we treat others. So, if you have been with us since the beginning, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us and sticking with Paul for these past four years. And if you are newer to Commons, maybe you're just leaning in for one of your first Sundays, that's fine. Maybe you're just curious about Jesus and you didn't even mean to be here this Sunday. We are so glad that you are here. And we hope that you pick up in this text how it is such a wide and expansive influence in our tradition, but then also how it shaped our journey as a community here at Commons. Now, we're going to settle into Romans in a second, but first, a quick look back at the last few weeks to this conversation that we just finished around brains and souls and bodies. And I have to say that, as part of our teaching team, we really enjoyed the challenge of speaking to our human experience as spiritual and sexual creatures. We also enjoyed the tightrope act of reading erotic poetry in church and unearthing Jesus' teaching about sex without losing the room. I mean, more than one of you did come up to me in the last week and say, whoa, that must have been a bit tricky, you know, talking about these spicy things. And I get that at some level because sexual intimacy and practice aren't your usual um, sermon um, topics. But guess what? These ideas, they're everywhere in our world. And they're part of our relationships and they are shaping our imaginations. And I suppose what we wanted to do is we wanted to close the gap a little bit 
demystify some of what the Bible says about our sexuality, hoping not just to add spice to your Friday nights or your Sunday brunch conversations after you left church, but also hoping that we might grow a little bit, especially in what it means to do the work that intimate moments always require of us. Picking up wisdom, some ancient, some from practitioners that are all around us today. Wisdom that carries and protects and strengthens us as human beings. So if you happen to still be working through some of the themes from Swipe Right, I'd love to hear from you and hear what's shifting and coming alive in you. And if you happen to have missed any of those amazing sermons, just a quick reminder that you can follow our teaching or check in at any time by heading over to commons.church watch, where you'll find links to YouTube or to podcasts, whatever you find easiest. Now, with that said, we come back to Rome. I welcome you. And as we get going, I invite you also to pray with me for just a moment. Loving God, you're God of these moments that we share and of the paths that have brought each of us here this morning. And we pause in this space and we center in on the things that are maybe lying just below the surface for us. For some of us, there's this excitement connected to maybe newfound energy, a new opportunity, a new connection. Some of us are experiencing this contentedness with where we are, with who we're becoming. We're grateful. But then I'm sure in this space there is a sense of anxiety for some of us, how we feel worn down by the things that we can't control or change. And for many of us, maybe there's fear too, and we carry some disappointment over unwanted outcomes. Maybe we just feel stuck, and it's been feeling like that for a while. These things we just choose to be aware of today. We don't want to drive them off and act as though we could run from who and what we are, but instead we ask that you would quiet the noise as we pause. And that you'd help us to turn from distraction and from the things that are stealing our attention. And that you would deepen in us a longing for your nearness. A nearness that makes a way as we trust your great kindness. And it's these things that we humbly ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right. So, as we get going today and set things up for the rest of our series, we need to talk a little bit about what it means to do theology, we need to talk about our issues with authority, and we need to talk about the difference between respectability and revolution. And to begin with, we're going to take a quick look at Paul, who is the writer of Romans. And I've pulled up his Facebook photo here. Interestingly, there's this ancient text that describes Paul's physical experience his appearance. And it reads this way, a man small of stature with a bald head and crooked legs, good state of body, with eyebrows meeting, and a nose somewhat hooked. And I think that that's not particularly flattering. Clearly, Paul didn't write this about himself. Short, bald, unibrow. But then the ancient author adds that Paul was full of friendliness. For now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel, which I think if you look at this photo, it's debatable. But anyways, the point is that our picture of who Paul was, much less what he looked like, this picture is sometimes a little hard for us to piece together. I mean, Paul was part of this uber-zealous group, these rabbis and teachers called Pharisees, and they had actually started out as a renewal movement. 
And this passion for renewal had started because they were looking around at their community, the Jews, and how so many of these people were looking more and more like the surrounding culture. People were becoming more Greek and more Roman, and that meant that the distinctive society that the Jews had been trying to build for hundreds of years, attempting to be faithful and just and compassionate, this was being lost. So the Pharisees see this and they became activists and they started calling God's people back to the stories and the commitments of the Hebrew Bible, back to the rhythms of life that was making them different in the world. And this is the activist fire that shaped Paul as a young man. And Paul loved this tradition. He loved this way of life. And in one place he wrote this. He said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. And it's this zeal that Paul names here, that's, this is what leads him to persecute Jesus' first followers. We read in the book of Acts that Paul saw the first disciples of Jesus as polluting the faith that he loved. They were putting his tradition at risk, and so he goes after them. In Acts 9, we see that he is on his way north to deal with some of these people that he's heard rumors of, and also note that his name is Saul at the time. And the story goes this way. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice responded, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And this moment, this mysterious encounter, this completely alters Paul's life. He goes from defending his faith from the story of Jesus to taking up the story of Jesus and carrying it across much of the Roman Empire. And sometime around 56 CE, we estimate that he writes this letter to some followers of Jesus in the city of Rome. And he says this to them. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets to the or in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of the great King David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And here we see Paul, an expert in the law, now a carrier of much better news. Paul, a child of the great Hebrew tradition, now a messenger to all people. And every year that we keep returning back to Rome, we need to remind ourselves that when Paul's language gets a little bit hard or cryptic, or even sometimes we find it offensive, and when he's discussing things that feel foreign and distant from us, or if you find yourself wondering why we have spent so much time thinking about these ideas, I want to encourage you, just remember that all theology, good and bad, emerges from life. It develops out of our search for God, out of our encounters with God, and it comes from our search for ourselves and our encounters in the world in lessons learned, in discoveries made, in changes uncovered in us. And for Paul, this was true as much as it is for me and for you. Which just means that as we finish this ancient letter over the next few weeks, and as we push to understand what's going on in Paul's brain, and what he means with these words, and how he felt his friend should live, as we do these things together, 
We are doing theology. And there are so many ways to engage this practice. You don't have to be a Bible nerd like me. You don't have to watch the History Channel. You don't even have to have a stack of Bibles at home. Just bring your questions and your doubts and your journey past and present. And if you happen to be in a season of unpacking life as it is and as it's been, that's totally fine. Maybe you're feeling settled and a return to Rome has you excited for the ways that you know you're going to stretch in your faith and trust again. Well, others of you might just honestly be looking for a word or an image or an idea or a moment that will quite honestly just give you what you need to face tomorrow morning. Those are all great places to do theology. And I hope that as we work through week by week and we get to the end of this project that we've been doing together, that you will find room in your heart for Paul and space in your journey for who you are right now. Trusting that the theology that you're learning and shaping and doing, that that theology is actually forming and holding and carrying you. And that like Paul, the apostle formerly known as Pharisee, that you will come to see the ways that the story of Jesus changes everything. Now, like previous years, we're gonna go through the text we have remaining section by section, through chapter 13 today, then chapters 14 through 16, and we're gonna leave ourselves a week to recap together at the end. And given that we're gonna do that flyover right at the end, let me just say this about what we've covered already. This letter to the Romans is actually, it's an extended argument where Paul is engaging in some very specific questions and concerns that he's getting from the community. And this is a group of Jews and Gentiles that are trying to figure out how this ancient story of the Hebrew people and law, how it makes sense in the wake of Jesus' life. And all through the letter, up to chapter 11, this means that Paul answers questions about who's in and who's out. If the Jews are still God's people, if the Gentiles really are with the cool kids now. But then in chapter 12, which is where we left off last spring, we saw Paul shift gears He's made all of his big points and he's laid it out as he thinks it should be and he begins then to make some instructions to the community. Be devoted to each other. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with those in need, practice hospitality. He's kind of just shooting these out there. And when he's doing this, he's actually answering this implied question. Okay, If God's faithfulness, which we see in Jesus, if this faithfulness really does change the story for every human being, then what do we do now? Which is how we find ourselves in chapter 13, which begins this way. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who are doing right, but for those who are doing wrong. And do you want to be free from the fear of those who are in authority? Well, then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Now, For those of you who think that religion shouldn't ever be political, Paul is not falling in line here, but perhaps in ways that maybe aren't the most obvious for us. See, because this is a 
it's an often misquoted and misapplied passage of scripture. Most recently, I don't know if you know this, it's been quoted by, on several occasions by Christian leaders and politicians to hush the criticism of violence and incarceration practices at the U.S. southern border. It's also quoted by a Christian leader in response to the American military's recent assassination of Iranian general. And perhaps its most notable historical presence is in how churches vocally supported the early rise of Adolf Hitler. And they used this text to assert the Nazi party's right to enact bigoted and nationalist policies that would ultimately result in World War II and provide a backdrop for the Holocaust. Now, just to be clear, I'm not proposing a link between Nazi Germany and contemporary American leaders. That wouldn't be fair. But what I am merely pointing out is how at various times, governments and Christian supporters of those governments have used this text as part of maintaining and asserting their power and their rights to use violent and coercive means, which is how governments work sometimes, but it is certainly not how Jesus said his kingdom would for the record. What's interesting is how this idea or this use that Paul has is directly at odds with that of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who we celebrated this last Monday. Some of you may have seen that in your social media feeds. And you may not know that in April of 1963, King took part in some peaceful protests in Birmingham, Alabama. Those protests were intended to stand against and confront practices of racism and segregation. And ultimately, he ends up arrested and he is imprisoned. And while he is in jail, he hears that white Christian leaders were accusing him of acting in bad faith. That ultimately his alliance with the protesters, it's, it wasn't helpful for society, that it was causing trouble, and that ultimately he was out of line. And we might imagine them citing Romans 13 to King. So King writes an open letter to these Christian siblings in which he profoundly argued that one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly and lovingly and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit, he writes, that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. And what we know is that Dr. King, despite his shortcomings, he lived out this vision with profound conviction and through forms of civil disobedience, he helped to bring about profound social change. So, what do we do then with Paul's words when some Christians are quoting Paul to condone violence and government control, while other Christians like Martin Luther King Jr. appear to challenge Paul's basic premise? And honestly, some of these people cause problems for governments. Which, quickly, just let me note that it's important to read these verses from the beginning of chapter 13 as connected to those that come right before them in chapter 12. Do you guys remember those? <laughs> Probably not. It's a year ago. There Paul says this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with each other. Don't repay anyone evil for evil and be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Don't Take revenge, my friends. And yes, Paul is talking to this emerging Christian community, this hodgepodge of people from different backgrounds that are trying to stick it out together. But then he goes right from there into these instructions that we're looking at of how to act towards the government. And listen, scholars estimate that this letter 
was written in the mid-50s of the Common Era. And we know that in the year 49 CE, the Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. He didn't like what was going on with them. And we also know that Christians were targeted periodically by later Roman rulers like Nero in the 60s and beyond. Which just means that Paul writes this letter at a time when Jewish followers of Jesus were unwelcome in Rome. At a time when Christians were one of many groups being targeted by Roman officials for not performing civic duties such as offering sacrifices of worship to the emperor. And it makes sense then that he's saying these things to them to keep his friends alive. But I actually think there's something more going on here because remember... When Paul says that there's no authority except that which God has established, that the authorities that exist have been established by God, when Paul talks of God here, he's thinking of Jesus. This image of the divine that totally contrasted with those of Roman gods like Mars, whose power sustained the rule and the domination of the emperor, and whose character provided divine justification for Roman violence, oppression, fear, and abuse. So when Paul imagines God establishing local authority, he's he's not saying they get a free pass, or that all leaders have God's stamp of approval. I mean, we got to remember, Paul took advantage of his Roman citizenship when it helped him advance his mission to reach everybody with the story of Jesus. He benefited from the structure and the security that local and provincial and imperial powers provided in the ancient world. And that's probably why he says a little bit later in verse 7, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, respect. If honor, then honor. In which case, he seems to be arguing, look, you've got it good. Play nice. But to be clear, to see the good that governing authorities provide is not the same as calling them good. Which isn't to say that you should cause problems, Paul implies. Don't seek revenge. Try to get along with everybody. Remember, he says that. Which is why I think Paul's implying something more here for us. Remembering how politically charged Rome was at the time and thinking about how politically polarized our time is. Where Paul's instructions to us might sound like, friends, don't stir up unnecessary trouble in your neighborhood community association. Don't get caught in political factions and fights with your family. Don't use accusation and dissension to grab at power or accomplish your goals. Because don't forget, The God we see in Christ shows us a new way of power, one that addresses our issues with authority. Because power itself was turned on its head as Jesus humbled himself and lived with no reputation, as Paul writes in another letter. Jesus gives up what belonged to him, modeling true authority as the ability to give up power instead of wielding it. And that said, we can't overlook that Paul was likely executed by Rome. That what took him into the halls of power was his politically charged assertion that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was ruler, that Jesus was divine, not the emperor. And it's this fact that helps us reconcile how the same guy who wrote that authorities are established by God would give his life as an anti-authoritarian. And that helps us decipher how and when his words have been misused and how we can live with them. 
Because we really do want to be a force for hope and justice here at Commons. And we do this by trying to be responsible and transparent with our financials. We do this by encouraging everybody to pay your taxes and participate in society. We encourage you all, most of the time, follow the law, especially as, this, as it implies just respecting everybody. We also do this by working with the federal government to advocate for refugees and supporting civic and community initiatives that help others in our city. But we also, as a community, protest long-standing government practices that have marginalized and wounded indigenous populations in our nation. And we try to understand and grow in our understanding of how our position is aligned with these practices, both in history and to this day. And we support the many ways that so many of you take up the cause of groups in need or groups overlooked. You speak out for those who have had power taken from them, have had power used against them, people who've been victimized by authorities and powers that are not somehow sanctioned just because they hold office. Because yes, along with Paul, we want you to be good citizens. But we also recognize that sometimes we are called to oppose and critique and call out our authorities. And I guess, for me, the tension in these ideas is why I feel, and or it's why I find Paul super helpful. Because sometimes when I read Paul, I get caught up in how big his ideas are. This guy who believed that in Christ all things were being made new, which is this huge idea. And yet, it seems as though Paul really understood how the world works. And he was wise to how things actually play out in the macro. Respect your leaders, he says. Pay your taxes. But then he's also helpful in what he says next in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, he goes on, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And I'll reference scholar Robert Jewett here, who points out that to read this passage, we actually have to clarify the specific social context to get what Paul's getting at. We have to remember that he's talking to members of these small urban enclaves, these collections of rich and poor, slaves and owners, politicians and merchants, Jews and Gentiles from literally across every foreseeable na or nation in the world at the time. And they're meeting in houses or they're meeting in tenements in the heart of this large city as new revolutionary family units gathered around what? A shared meal. A meal served at a table where all were seen as equal, or at least if only for the moments that they were in the same room. And when we name this context, we see that Paul has a clear opinion of how the world actually changes. Keep your head down. Make peace with power. Even partner with power for good. For sure, do that, Paul seems to say. It's a respectable way to improve the world. But that's not the same thing as a world made right. No, Paul pushes further into language that sounds familiar to us because it comes from the teaching of Jesus on the greatest commands. And it pushes into language of revolution that brings with it a different law. A law that's greater than Moses. 
a law that has more authority than Rome's. Where we see that if the most zealous of insiders like Paul could become a messenger to all of the outsiders, then maybe love could be a better way. A way that as we follow it, it teaches us to keep no scores or debts other than love. Which is to say, I always owe you. And we learn to accept each other, knowing and addressing each other's needs the longer we live together. And we open our homes to those who have more than us and those who have less than us. Where we treat each other equally, equal attention, equal affection, equal deference, regardless of the position or gender or orientation we each occupy. Because that is an embodied and local and transformative way to do theology. And this is the kind of theology that conquered Rome's authority. And it still lights the world. Let's pray. God, we are present again to the great mystery of Scripture and the way that it comes to us and the way that as we unpack it, it starts to shape the way that we see ourselves, the way we see you, and the way that we see the world. And one of the things that we choose to confess just as we start this journey together is that the measure of our theology is our action. And like Paul, our action is actually a journey that we're on, a path we're on from maybe being closed to others and being hateful towards others to being more gracious. Maybe a path from being really zealous to being more inclusive. And we know and understand that our own journeys towards this are not without their twists and their turns and we realize that our world is such an interesting place for us to try to use these words that Paul writes because there are leaders and powers that we can actually help in the world. And there seem to be so many that we should be opposing. And this is why we pray for the hearts and minds of our leaders to be open and to be honest and we pray that even this week that power grabbing and deception and abuses of power would be exposed. And we pray too that we would live under the higher law of love that's lived out in a million simple choices where we carry good news of a change that is on its way in the world in the relationships, in the homes, in the neighborhoods that we already occupy. We ask that you give us courage as we do this work for the sake of all. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.